Garden Basics with Farmer Fred is brought to you by Smart Pots, the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container. It's made in the USA. Visit smartpots.com slash Fred for more information and a special discount. That's smartpots.com slash Fred. Welcome to the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. If you're just a beginning gardener or you want good gardening information, well, you've come to the right spot. If you're listening to this while working in the yard, there are more hard workers nearby. In fact, they're right under your feet. Today, we find out how plants work and how you can have a successful garden with even less work by helping those underground workers. Washington State University horticulture professor Linda Chalker Scott talks about the amazing intersection of plants, plant roots, your soil, and your mulch. Once again, proving you're working too hard and spending too much money on something that nature perfected a long time ago. Flowers contribute a lot to the fruit and vegetable garden. They can attract pollinators, hummingbirds, beneficial insects, as well as adding beauty. One plant in particular is a pollinator magnet, the Peruvian lily, also known as Alstroemeria. It's also one of the longest-lasting indoor cut flowers, too. Well, as long as you don't cut it, we'll explain what we mean by that. Hey, how's that avocado tree doing in your yard? Uh-huh. Unless you live in the milder parts of California and Florida, it's probably not doing very well. We have tips for increasing your chances of actually getting an avocado tree to produce. Maybe. Well, probably not. But what the heck, you gotta try, right? It's all part of episode 22 of Garden Basics with Farmer Fred. Cozy up on the mulch and give us a listen. We'll do it all in under 30 minutes. Let's go. My next guest has been on the program before. She has written several books, including a couple of my favorites, The Informed Gardener and The Informed Gardener Blooms Again. She has a Ph.D. in horticulture from Oregon State University. She is Washington State University's Extension Urban Horticulturist and an associate professor in the Department of Horticulture. And she has the thankless job of overseeing the Facebook page, The Garden Professor's Blog. Uh, you talk about answering tough garden questions. She gets them all. Linda Chalker Scott, a pleasure to talk to you and about your new book, How Plants Work. Fred, it's great to be back on your show again. Well, let's let's start with the the Facebook page, which which I find painful because I'm I'm just glad I don't get those questions on the air because some people are asking some very tough questions on your Facebook page, the Garden Professor's blog. But you have some help in that. I do. Um, there's, it started out with just four of us, and we've expanded. We've about doubled the number of um, garden professors that administrate this now. And when when I when something comes up about tomatoes, and I'm not a tomato grower, somebody else who is and a tomato researcher, they'll jump right in there. So it's a wonderful resource for people that want science-based gardening information. And that is the key of for all of your information in this book, how plants work, as well as your previous books. Show me the science. Exactly. And let, let, let's take an example. Uh, there's a lot of homegrown remedies for weed controls, uh, one of which is vinegar. And even though it is an organic product, uh, vinegar can be quite hazardous to your own health. Absolutely. Um, the stuff that you get at the grocery store, the vinegar in a bottle, isn't really concentrated enough to do much damage to plants. I mean, sure, it might make the leaves wrinkle up a little bit, but it won't do a thing to the roots. 
Um, you have to really get that uh, horticultural acetic acid, which is much more concentrated than vinegar. And yeah, it's 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 pretty bad stuff. Um, you know, you get your face over a bottle of that, and you can singe your singe your nose hairs and hurt your eyes. And I believe vinegar is only a top kill product. Besides. Yeah, that's right. It, it really has absolutely no effect on on weeds with pernicious roots. And boy, I think most weeds have that, and that's why they're weeds. Well, let's talk about roots. And that is a, a fascinating chapter in your book, How Plants Work. It's called The Underground Railroad. And I thought that was a very apt description because there's a lot of movement going around uh, in the middle of the night that we can't see and during the day as well. But it is so vital to the health of our plants. And it's and it's not just roots. Yeah, um, and it, it's funny because I'll have to backtrack a little bit here. When I was in grad school, I avoided root classes like the plague because roots are so darn hard to, to study. Um, as soon as you start digging them up and exposing them to light, you know, they're not going to function the same way anymore. But the nice part is, is that other people with much more patience than me have done a lot of research. We now know that plant roots aren't just these little isolated um, tears down there underground. They're connected uh, to one another and to other organisms, um, primarily by fungal hyphae that just kind of act as these uh, little uh, highway interchanges, as it were, to to take uh, nutrients and other compounds and move them all through the soil system. It's rather amazing uh, how water plays a big part in that movement as well. Yeah, um, if you don't have a a well-hydrated soil or if you don't have enough oxygen, in other words, you don't have a nice porous soil with moisture and with oxygen, the whole system shuts down. You know, you can kind of compare it to a traffic jam. Nothing moves. It is um, so necessary, yet it is probably the one component of gardening that most people get wrong. Plants are either overwatered or underwatered. And a lot of people make the mistake of, okay, they're switching from sprinklers to drip irrigation. Well, good for you. But then they go and they place that emitter next to the tree trunk. And in that underground railroad system, where would the water be better absorbed? If you think about root systems as a big pancake, which is what they really are um, in an uninterrupted soil, you know, you wouldn't have the water out away away from the trunk, um, preferably even away from the drip line, because uh, most of the feeder roots, you know, those little fine root hairs uh, or roots with root hairs are taking up uh, water and nutrients far away from the trunk. And that's where you need to really be putting the, the resources, because that's where you've got the active root growth. And we both know and are both big fans of mulch. It can certainly help in a drought for conserving soil moisture. I like to tell people what the Sacramento Tree Foundation advises as far as uh, when you mulch a tree, use the 444 rule of four inches thick of of a coarse mulch like bark. Keep it four inches away from the trunk of the tree and have it extend four feet beyond the canopy of the tree. But I know that you like lots more mulch than that. I do, um, and you have to be cautious. Uh, you know, the, the, to when you're when you're doing it the way that I do it, that you're using pretty coarse, chunky stuff. Um, the coarse, chunky mulch has really great uh, ability to to let water and, and uh, oxygen move through it. So you can use four, six, eight, ten. 18 inches of, of wood chips, for instance, to help suppress weeds and keep soil moist. And I've, I've done this before, um, and there is a lot of research behind it as well. That that just uh, improves water holding capacity and moderates temperature, and, and, and established trees and shrubs just absolutely love it, and it keeps the weeds down. Well, when I win the California lottery, I'll be sure to add 18 inches worth of mulch <laughs> around my trees. Because at, I know. what is it, $30, $35 a cubic yard? Well, that's that's a lot of mulch when you're talking 18 inches deep. 
It is, unless you get the, the, and I don't know if it's free down where you are, but, you know, Arborist Wood Chips up here are either cheap or free, and that's one of the very best coarse woody mulches you can get. Well, that brings up a, a very good question because a lot of people are in that habit. If they see tree trimming work going on in their neighborhood, they might uh, bribe the tree trimmers with a six-pack or whatever to get that load of chipped tree material for their own yard. But are you importing somebody else's problems? You know, you probably are, but you have to kind of take that with a grain of salt. So let's say that your your neighbor or someone has had a, a tree chipped up that maybe um, had some kind of rot issue or some kind of disease issue. You have to realize that wood, even though it most definitely has uh, that, that disease in it, those spores are everywhere. So, you know, it, it doesn't really make any difference if you use that as a mulch or not, as long as you don't make the mistake of digging it in. Because once you dig that diseased material into the root zone and start injuring roots, as you will with a shovel, um, then you open open them wide to to infections. Um, But just using it as a mulch, you know, your soil already has all those pathogens in it. They're just not active because hopefully you've got, you know, very good, healthy soil conditions, well-drained and lots of oxygen. There has been a story floating around for years and years where some people advise, oh, whatever you do, don't put mulch, don't dig mulch into the soil because it'll tie up nitrogen. True or false? If you dig it in, it's absolutely true because um, uh, woody mulch has, you know, it's brown. So if you're thinking about compost and brown materials, it doesn't have a very good, uh, uh, good C, C to N ratio. So putting it into the soil, the microbes start breaking it down. They need nitrogen to do that. They start stripping it out of the soil. But on the top of the soil, it doesn't have that impact in the soil itself. So um, the microbes are breaking it down, and the, the soil interface where the mulch touches might have that um, deficiency. But just go a centimeter below that, and the nitrogen is exactly the same as it would be if you had no mulch. There are some proponents, uh, unlike Washington State, uh, the soils here in California tend to be neutral to alkaline. And if people want to grow southern highbush blueberries here, they need a, a fairly acidic mix, something perhaps around a 5.5 pH. And one popular mix that a lot of growers advise is one-third peat moss or core, a one-third azalea, rhododendron, camellia soil, and one-third of pathway bark, small bark. In a, in a mix together and plant your blueberries in that. Would that tie up nitrogen? Probably not, because I think when they use that bark that you mentioned, um, it's composted. And the interesting thing about uh, wood, you know, wood chip mulch or bark mulch is that when it's fresh, um, you know, it will tie up nitrogen if it's incorporated. But once it's composted, it has a very good carbon to nitrogen ratio. So you can go ahead and use it as either a mulch or an amendment. It won't cause a problem with your nitrogen. Linda Chalker-Scott, author of the book, How Plants Work, the science behind the amazing things that plants do. It's not uncommon for tomato gardeners to get some rather interesting surprises this time of year. Now, they're pleasant surprises, usually in the form of a volunteer tomato plant. If you're a curious gardener such as myself, you just might want to grow it out to see what sort of tomato develops. However, that tomato plant may be popping up in an area where you don't want it to grow. And maybe all your garden area this time of year is filled with other vegetables and fruits. There is a solution. Dig it up carefully and transplant it to a large smart pot using a good quality potting soil. Place it in a sunny area, prune it back a bit, keep the soil moist, and voila, you've got mystery tomatoes later in the summer. 
Smart Pots are the original lightweight, long-lasting fabric plant container made in the USA. They're sturdy, easy-draining containers that'll last for years. Smart Pots are made with an easy-breathing fabric. It keeps them cooler than plastic pots. You're going to have a more successful tomato-growing experiment or whatever you're growing in the hot summer months. You want more information? Well, visit smartpots.com slash Fred. And be sure to include that slash Fred part. That can get you a nice discount when you buy a Smart Pot. Smart Pots are available at many Ace and True Value hardware stores, local independent nurseries, and online at Amazon.com. Again, visit smartpots.com slash Fred and get yourself a Smart Pot. Or two. Or three. Hey, how would you like to win your own Smart Pot? From June 16th through June 30th, one lucky winner can qualify to receive Smart Pot's six-foot long bed, a fabric container large enough to hold over 10 cubic feet of soil. It's 16 inches tall and 16 inches wide by about six feet long. That's enough room for a couple of tomato plants and a couple of pepper plants or maybe one fantastic display of summer flowers. We're going to award the Smart Pot Long Bed to the best comment or review about Garden Basics with Farmer Fred that you post at the podcast service where you're listening to this show. And by best comment, I don't necessarily mean the kindest comment, uh, just the most creative comment. So when you're done listening to the show, leave a comment wherever you're listening, and you just might get yourself the Smart Pot 6-Foot Long Bed. We'll announce the winner on the July 3rd edition of the Garden Basics with Farmer Fred podcast. Thank you. We're talking with Linda Jocker Scott, Washington State University Extension Urban Horticulturist and Associate Professor in the Department of Horticulture at WSU and author of several great garden books, including The Informed Gardener, The Informed Gardener Blooms Again, and How Plants Work, The Science Behind the Amazing Things Plants Do. Linda, we've been talking about mulch, and mulch is a great way to feed your plants, isn't it? You know, I, I like to kind of compare it to slow food. You know, the slow food movement is huge, and, and I, I think it's a really good analogy. You know, you use a decent organic mulch, and especially one that has some woody material in it. That's really important. And um, microbes break it down pretty slowly, and then as water moves through the soil, it takes those nutrients down to the, the roots, and so you have this nice slow feed of nutrients at a, at a rate that the plants and the microbes in the soil can actually use them. So you're not going to get issues with um, over-fertilization. You don't get watershed contamination. You just have this nice slow feed as your organic material breaks down. I think it's a great way to fertilize. And you have a great example in your book, How Plants Work, of what you would find if you dug through that mulch and where the mulch meets the soil. And uh, I recall you writing in the book about finding those little white hairs yeah, it really is fun, and obviously this time of year isn't the best time to do it because everything's dry. But wait until you know, wait until winter where things are a little wetter, you know, and, and move aside the mulch, and you go from the the coarse chunky piece pieces and you get down near the soil where you've got this nice compost layer developing and you start to see, you know, plant roots are there and you see all these white hairs and they're long and thin. Um, They don't really look like roots because they're way too thin. They're very fragile. And those are the mycorrhizal hyphae. So it's 
part of that underground network that we were talking about before. And um, this is an interesting thing. Roots kind of move up and down through the mulch layer as uh, water conditions allow them to. So in the wintertime, you'll get root growth up into the mulch, and then in the summer, they go back down again. So they're very dynamic in terms of where they'll grow. And that's another thing your book points out, too, about roots is they tend to be closer to the surface than a lot of people think, perhaps down 12 or 18 inches. They're not drilling their way to China. Absolutely. And um, the the thinner and, and more compacted your soil is, the, the higher up in, in the soil they'll be. So if you were in the Midwest, you know, where they've got those great um, plain soils with all grassland and you've got, you know, several inches of, of topsoil, you might find roots going down, you know, a foot or, or two feet or even deeper. But in our soils, um, especially urban soils, which tend to be pretty compacted and not be real nutritious, um, most of your roots can be within the top 12 inches. Um, and you'll have a few that will sink down here and there, but the majority of the roots are pretty close to the surface. And again, that just shows the importance of that mulch layer to help not only feed the soil, but moderate soil temperature and moderate soil moisture loss. Absolutely, because as the closer you are to the surface, you know, the more the environment affects the soil. Now, your your book, How Plants Work, can actually save gardeners a lot of money because you point out that a lot of people, when they're digging a hole to plant a new tree or shrub, they'll go out and get some fancy amendments and work that into the hole for that tree or the shrub. And uh, they'd be better off using those amendments someplace else, wouldn't they? Absolutely. Um, you know, nothing nothing should go back into that hole that didn't come out of it except the roots of your plant. And everything else that you want to add, whether it's it's compost or um, if you need to add some nitrogen fertilizer or whatever, that goes on the top. And then nature works it down. You don't need to do it. And again, it's kind of a slow feed type of thing. So if you had the choice of receiving for Christmas a rototiller or a chipper shredder, which would you want? Oh, really tough for the chipper shredder. I want one so badly. <laughs> because I love, as you know, I love wood chip mulches. I would love to make my own. I had a little cheap electric one for a while, but it, it just couldn't handle very much. And we're going to be moving out to a family farm here next year, and I've got 35 acres. I want, I want a chipper shredder in my own, my own mulch pile. <laughs> I can heartily recommend the 8-horsepower BCS. I haven't lost my arm in it yet. <laughs> Now, what what are the the arguments against rototilling soil? You know, it makes us feel good because uh, you know it, it's 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 hard work. And we feel like we've accomplished a lot, and then you have this nice soil that's all uniform in texture, and it just it looks the way you think soil should. You know, you you do a clip art search for soil, and that's you get a hand, you know, you get a picture of a hand with this uniform looking coffee ground type of material. And, you know, you need soil that has structure. It's got, you know, has pens. And the only way you're going to get that is to have those um, great mycorrhizal connections and, and, and uh, intact roots. And sure, I mean, you're going to have to dig holes to plant things, but you don't have to, to turn up the whole thing um, into this uniform uh, coffee ground-like mess. It really takes a long time then for the soil to redevelop its structure. And does it kill earthworms, as I often hear? Absolutely can, um, but the interesting thing about earthworms is, I'm sure you know, is if it's big enough pieces, they'll regenerate. So um, it, it's just it's kind of mass destruction, and there really is no really good reason to do it. Um, you know, a little a little more work in re- repressing weeds, either by mul- keeping them mulched before you plant or whatever, it can it can really save you some time and energy in terms of the soil preparation. 
The country seems to be going more and more through drought cycles. And during the last drought cycle here in California, there were a lot of new products that came out that allegedly would allow you to apply less water. Basically, they would preserve soil moisture. The common ingredient in a lot of these products are polysaccharides. They're sugars. Do you know of any research, any scientific evidence that uh, sugar can uh, keep moisture in the soil longer, I guess? You know, not really, and not for any length of time. I mean, sure, if you, you know, you put some um, aloe gel or something in, sure, I mean, it's moist, it'll keep moisture there for a while, but those things get eaten up so fast by microbes, it, it's just a very expensive way to have a very transient impact. Um, you're much better off protecting the soil from evaporation just by mulching it rather than incorporating all this expensive stuff. Um, you know, save your money for, for buying plants and, and don't buy all these things, especially the ones that have uh, surfactants, or which basically are soaps. You know, you don't want to be pouring soap onto your soil. Yeah, and a lot of them have uh, salts in it, too. Oh, yeah. You know, people keep on thinking that salt just means sodium chloride, and there's all kinds of salts, and they're generally parts of fertilizers. And the more you add, the, the worse your drought problems are going to be. What, how do salts interact with uh, the mycorrhizal functions? Um, they have a, a well. If you have enough of them, what they'll do is they just they draw water out of tissues, and so you know salt salt toxicity affects everything, um, whether it's plant material or, or the, the, the microbes themselves. Um, it just draws water out, and so it dehydrates everything. And if you've got a drought stress situation, again, the more salt you have in the soil, the harder it is on the mycorrhizae, the harder it is on the roots. It just really um, takes its toll on the functionality of that underground railroad. Sounds like uh, something along the lines of aerating and adding compost might be in order for something like that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that, that at least is going to provide um, uh, your organic matter is a, is a great retainer of moisture. Well, and that's just a much better way to get stuff in there. If people want three great books on gardening, I can certainly recommend The Informed Gardener and The Informed Gardener Blooms Again, in which uh, Linda Chalker Scott blows apart so many common garden myths that seem to reappear with the seasons and her latest book how plants work the science behind the amazing thing plants do besides being a good explanation and an easy to understand explanation of how these functions work in the soil you're still exploding garden myths that's your lot in life linda it is <laughs> and you do a fine job at it well thank you i hate being everybody's buzzkill but i guess someone has to do it <laughs> <laughs> well what is the most commonly reoccurring garden myth that you have to deal with? You know, right now, and I don't know why it is, on social media, I am so tired of this homemade weed killer. You know, it's the Epsom salts plus vinegar plus Dawn dish soap. Every single day, I see that someplace on Facebook, and half the time it gets asked with a question on our page. Like, don't do it. <laughs> don't do it. Don't add salt. Don't add vinegar. And don't add soap. Oh, so now I know where the questions I'm getting are coming from. Okay. <laughs> and now so I know some of you listening out there have just heard it with one ear, and all you heard was, oh, vinegar and Epsom salts and Dawn detergent kills weeds. Well, let's go to work. No, no, don't. Don't. No, 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 no. Use a hoe. Pull it out of the ground. Oh, Linda, we have a tough life. Let, right. <laughs> Linda Jocker Scott, her latest book, How Plants Work, The Science Behind the Amazing Things Plants Do. Linda, thanks so much for your time. Hey, Fred, it was really fun to talk to you again.
For most of the United States, there is one great flower that attracts a lot of pollinators, a lot of beneficial insects, a lot of hummingbirds. It makes a great cut flower, too. It's called the Peruvian lily, also known as Alstroemeria. And it's fairly widely adapted. You can grow it from Washington down to Southern California south from Kansas through Texas, south from Ohio down to Florida, and up into the Atlantic coastal states. It is very versatile. But there's a trick to Alstroemeria if you're using it for a cut flower. Warren Roberts, the retired superintendent of the UC Davis Arboretum, tells us more and how to pick them for cut flowers. Alstroemeria is sometimes called Inca lily or Peru lily, although they're really from the main one. The main source of the varieties and species is Chile. But somehow... The, the, the name Chili Lily has caught on, <laughs> but that would be the more appropriate name. Great uh, cut flower, but you don't cut them, you pull them. And, and then you, uh, that, that's one of the longest lasting of all base flowers. Hmm. Today's garden question comes from Dave. He left it on the Get Growing with Farmer Fred Facebook page. He says, eight years ago, I got some avocados from my dad who lives outside of Tampa, Florida. We planted the seeds just for fun, and behold, it started growing. It's become quite the tree, but I have never seen a flower or fruit on the tree. Again, it's been in the ground over eight years. Do you have any ideas? Well, Dave, my first idea is you don't live in avocado country. You don't mention where you live, and that has a lot to do with where you can grow avocados. If you're familiar with USDA zones, most of the commercial avocado country in America is in zones 10A and 10B, and that's primarily Southern California and a lot of Florida. There's a bit in zone 9B, but once you get below zone 9B, say 9A or USDA zone 8, there's too much freezing temperatures to grow an avocado tree that'll bear fruit. So my guess is you live in an area that either gets too cold or too hot. That's why you don't see much in the way of commercial avocado production, say in South Texas or Arizona, because it just gets too darn hot, even though during the winter, the overnight temperatures don't get around freezing. Avocados like mild temperatures, not too hot, not too cold. The ones who have been able to successfully grow avocados that bear fruit in zones 9B and 9A, it's usually a combination of factors that uh, work. For many people, it's to plant two different varieties of avocado. Avocado pollination is increased when you have two types of avocado trees, one with what's called an A flower and one that has a B flower. These flower types open at different times of the day. According to the California Rare Fruit Growers Association, avocado flowers are either receptive to pollen in the morning and shed pollen the following afternoon, that would be a type A flower, or are receptive to pollen in the afternoon and shed pollen the following morning, that would be type B. Type A flower varieties include some adaptable avocado varieties that might work in Zone 9B or USDA Zone 9A, as long as you don't get too much in the way of freezing temperatures or too hot in the daytime. Those varieties include Mexicola and Pinkerton. Other varieties that produce a type B flower that have a chance, and I'm just saying have a slight chance, of growing if you're outside of the USDA Zone 10 include Bacon, Jim, Zutana, Fuerte, Surprise, and Stewart. These are called Mexican avocados, and they tend to mature six to eight months after flowering. P. 
people who have been successful growing avocado trees outside USDA zones 10 and perhaps 9B, they've done it through a combination of factors, correct watering, which includes consistently moist soil but well-draining soil, reflected heat in the wintertime to keep the temperatures above freezing that may come from positioning the tree near a south or west facing wall and perhaps surrounded by a concrete patio and a lot of these trees never get taller than the house or the garage that it might be next to the house protects it from getting too cold and usually those trees die back as soon as they start getting a little bit taller than the house and uh, did i mention that it takes eight years or more to get fruiting avocado there could be a problem there as well so enjoy the tree dave and keep buying the avocados at the grocery store wherever you may be living. Find out more information about growing avocados in marginal climates in today's show notes. Thanks for listening to Garden Basics with Farmer Fred, brought to you by Smart Pots. Garden Basics comes out every Tuesday and Friday. It's available on many podcast platforms, including Apple, Spotify, Google, iHeart, Stitcher, and many more. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a comment or a rating. That helps us decide which garden topics you'd like to see addressed. And again, thank you.